the chosen people who are the chosen people we are that's right so oftentimes when we ask that question people automatically think of the Jews and that's true but for Christians we are the chosen people and that's true as well so I want us to look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. And these letters were originally meant to be read aloud. Um, so a lot of people were not able to read, and it's hard to, to have one letter and pass it around to the whole church. So what they would do is when they had a, a letter from Paul or James or Peter or Jude or one of the other apostles, um, they would gather together in their times of worship and celebration and they would stand up and read these letters. And reading it to yourself, you get certain things out of it. But when it's read aloud, oftentimes you discover new things because we're not used to that. And uh, that was their primary way of, of uh, learning was for people to read aloud to them. And so 1 Peter is a, it's one of the general letters, which means it was written to a whole group of churches so they would read this thing and pass it on to the next church. And it's important what he has to say. And um, I don't know, sometimes it's hard to read these things and understand what it says and sit still because of the greatness of what he's telling us. So God's elect it's the word chosen. So Peter starts off telling them who he is and who it's written to. And then in verse 2, well, verse 1, he says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles, chosen people in exile. And then he lists the places where, they're, where they, he's writing to. And he says these people are chosen ones. In um, chapter 2, in verse 9, he's going to, to tell the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not of people, but now you are the people, you are people of God. Once you had not received mercy... But now you have received mercy. That's who we are. So if you say that you're the chosen people, then the question comes up, chosen for what? What does it mean to be chosen? Uh, you know, if you're playing baseball, you're saying, I want him, him, and him on my team. <laughs> you know, you're chosen. Uh, which means you're going to pick out the best players because you, want, you expect something of them. And God does too. So he says, we are elect, chosen, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That's what we've been chosen for. So according to God's foreknowledge, that's, uh, that's where we get the word prognosis from. It's telling you, what's coming. God knew beforehand. 
So, for instance, uh, in the case of Peter himself, if we were picking people around whom to build a church from nothing, I don't know that I would have chosen a guy like Peter. He's a businessman, not a problem there. He's a fisherman and a good fisherman, making his living doing that. Okay, not a problem there. But he is as rough um, a guy as you're ever going to find. And uh, if you know people who make their living on the sea, you know what I'm talking about. Um, just they're hardworking, good people, that, but they just live a rough lifestyle. Peter was that way. And when he began to understand who Jesus was, he came and he fell at Jesus' feet, uh, at Jesus feet and he said, Lord, you need to go away from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus looked at him and he said, I know that. That's why I'm here. That's why I've chosen you. Now that's good news for me. So, we've been chosen, chosen by God in the sanctification, the cleansing, the holiness, the setting aside of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. The sprinkling comes first. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, when they were just setting up the sanctuary and the tabernacle and everything, and they had slaughtered the, um, the animals, and they were bringing the blood, and they were putting it on the altar and upon the um, Ark of the Covenant, and they were anointing everything, and they were anointing things. Moses and the, uh, and the other guys, they went out among the people, and they had this big bowl of blood. And they were taking it, and they were sprinkling, throwing blood on everybody. You're covered by the blood, which means your sins are forgiven. And God has accepted that substitution on your behalf. Because you as a sinner, me as a sinner, we deserve to die. And God in His mercy has sacrificed His Son that we might be sprinkled with His blood and become new people. Sins forgiven. The old done away with. And so that's what he's called us to. And then we're free. Free to be followers of Jesus Christ. Now, it's good to keep in mind that every one of these people who followed Jesus was a sinner as much as you or I. And just because they were following Jesus didn't mean that they were perfect. They were not. And as you read through the Gospels, you see they're still squabbling. They're still arguing. They're still getting in fights with each other. They're still condemning and accusing people. They're still trying to do, they're doing things wrong. But at the same time, they are following Jesus and he is teaching them and they are being changed. The change doesn't happen all at once. When a baby is born, it's an infant. It's not a mature uh, adult. And you don't expect a newborn infant to act like a fully grown, mature person. It can be a lot of learning and growing and mistakes and stumbling and falling and getting back up. A lot of that goes into that. And that's where we are as Christian people. But the fact is that you don't stay as an infant. So Peter is writing and um, he's saying we've been chosen for obedience, for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. These are some of the benefits, grace and peace, 
of being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. He imparts that to us. You can't get it any other way. So then he stops and he praises the Lord for a minute. And this is where I want to concentrate this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And he goes on and he talks about um, suffering that you have to go through, but he says that's where your faith comes in. And it, it tests it, it tries it, it takes us out the impurities and the imperfections through the heat and the beating of metal to make it stronger and more useful. And he says our faith is like that. So he tells us, by God's mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So I want to ask this this morning, as God's children, as his chosen ones, as people who know the Lord, is your hope a living hope? Now, hope is only as good as what you're hoping for or what you're hoping in. Uh, hope that's displaced is not going to be fulfilled. And hope that is displaced ends in sorrow and grief because it's an unreal expectation and it will never come to pass. So we need to be careful and make sure that it is a, a living hope. So, uh, Mark, you're a farmer. You plant seeds in the ground. Why do you do that? It's, a, it's an act of faith every time. <laughs> and so you put the seed in the ground with the hope and expectation of a harvest. That's, that's what it is. Otherwise, why would you do that? So it, it is, but it's an active hope. You don't just stick it in the ground and walk off and leave it. You do things. So a living hope is one that's active hope. Because you also work to secure it. The farmer, they don't till the soil so much anymore, but some do. They feed it, they irrigate it, um, they watch over it. Whatever it needs, they're going to provide. So you're a participator. It's a living hope. And because you have that hope of the harvest, then you're going to work, do your part to make that possible. Does Mark make the seed grow? No. He doesn't. So it's that kind of thing that God does. A living hope is one that's active, developing, and growing. It's not a passive acceptance that everything will be all right in the end. But it's a hope in which we work with God to achieve God's purposes. Paul talks a lot about it as well. I'll read a couple of quick passages for you. In Philippians chapter 2, 
Remember, this is that great passage where he's talking about, as Christians, we ought to have the mind of Christ in the sense of laying down our lives for one another. And in Philippians 2, he says it ends up with, uh, in Jesus' case, where because Jesus has done that on our behalf, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so he continues down in verse 12. He says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you work out your own salvation. You're not working for the salvation. The salvation is a gift. But as a result of that salvation being there, there are certain things that we are to do as we walk with God. So you remember when Jesus was uh, criticized for healing people on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response was, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he said, God is always working to this day, and that's why I'm working too. Because I'm doing what I see my Father doing. Jesus said, if we walk with him, we will be where he is. And he told us that greater things than he has done, we will do in his name. And so it's, a, it's an invitation to be uh, partners with, and that's the word that's used throughout the New Testament co-laborers, partners with God. Paul has written earlier to the church at Ephesus, also in chapter 2 of Ephesus, verses 8 through 10. These are familiar passages to us. And he sets this out. He says, It's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. Not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship. We are the thing that God is working on. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now he said two things. Number one, your salvation is by grace through faith. It's not earned. We can't earn, work our way into heaven, be good enough to merit God's grace and mercy. These are free gifts, freely given. They can only be accepted and received. But once they are accepted and received, there's a responsibility. We have to live it. Put it into practice. Working out our own salvation. Because God has worked these changes in me, then it should be evident by what I say, do, um, Attitudes, all these kinds of things. Relationships, it ought to be working out in us. Does that mean we're perfect? No. But it means we're in the process of those things becoming more and more effective in our lives. So we talked last week a little bit about the fruit of the Spirit being a result of the Holy Spirit's presence. You don't plant the seed and next day come out and expect to grab an apple. You don't. It takes time. The seed has to fall into the ground. It has to die. And out of its death comes a new life. And then, that's not the end of it either, is it? The tree has to grow. 
It has to mature. And when it begins to produce fruit, you don't go out and see blossoms one day and go pick harvested ripe fruit the next day. It doesn't work that way. It grows and develops and matures. And when the harvest time is right, that's when you pick it. So the other thing about fruit, it, it's meant to be used. If you don't use it, it just sits there on the tree and rots. So fruit is meant to be lived. We have to live it out in our daily life. And so that's what Paul is saying here. These fruits, these works, these are things that God prepared beforehand for us to do. You know, what do you think about the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve fell? What did they do all day? Did they just lay around and, you know, because it was a perfect environment, you know? Uh, it was beautiful, pleasant place to be there. The food was there. If they got hungry, all they had to do was go over and pick it. Uh, it was great. But it said that God put him down there to take care, to work the garden, take care of it. And the goal was that they were to fill the earth and subdue it. So they were starting with that garden which God created and put them in. And their job was to take care of that, good stewardship, and then to expand that garden to the rest of the world. There was work before sin ever entered the picture. God continually working, expecting us as his children to be continually working in that sense. Demonstrating, putting into practice, uh, bringing others in. So God called Abraham out of paganism in Babylon and he made a promise to him and he said, I will bless you. Man, that's good news. Who would not want to hear God saying to you as an individual person, calling you by name, I will bless you. Wow. That's not the end of it. And you will be a blessing and not just a little one all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you so Abraham you're going to be the conduit through which the blessings of God flows out to people around you what does it mean to be the chosen people is our hope a living hope we are to be conduits of God's blessing to the people around us. So again, uh, the hope springs from the dying seed. And Jesus talked about this in John 12 when the Greeks wanted to come and see him. He told him, he said, unless a kernel of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains alone. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing they took some seeds that were buried in a pyramid uh, and had lain there for a couple of thousand years. It was dark, it was dry, it was sterile. And they took those seeds and planted them in the ground. Little sunshine, little water, and those seeds produced fruit. But it had to die first. It could sit there in the dark for couple of thousand years nothing so 
If the kernel of wheat dies, then it bears much fruit. And Jesus invited us. So our hope comes from the death of Jesus. And that's what he said. It's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, having been sprinkled by his blood into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who through God's power are being guarded through faith. Your faith is your protection. Paul said the same thing, didn't he? The shield of faith by which you quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. Uh, you know, that's what a shield is for. It's to protect you. That's its main function. And if we want our faith to grow, that means we're going to have to use it. So as Christian people, I don't know, I've prayed this prayer. You probably have too. Lord, like the disciples did, increase our faith. <laughs> faith grows by being challenged. It's the only way it grows. And when the enemy attacks us, that's what the faith is for. You bring the shield up. So our hope comes from the death of Christ and from the deaths that we die in actively living for him. If you're going to live for Jesus, it means you're going to have to die to self because you can't live for both. And so it's through that no one comes to personal faith except by dying. We have to submit ourselves to the Lord and say, Lord, we have to acknowledge to ourselves, I am a sinner. I cannot help myself. There are things in my life that I cannot change. It's not willpower. It's not strength. It's not endurance. It's not determination. It's not by choice. I cannot do it. No matter how hard I try, I cannot change. But the Lord can change me from within. But in order to do that, I have to let go of the control. And that's where we stumble. We don't want to let go. And that's where the dying comes in. It's not a once-off thing. It begins there. But as we go through life, there are other things that keep coming up. And our nature takes a while for it to realize that um, it's not in charge anymore because it's been used to it your whole life. And so it's a constant daily. Paul said, I die every day. The revelation of our human condition as we see ourselves in the light of Christ puts to death our pride and self-delusion. People are so disappointed because they become disillusioned. But before you can become disillusioned, you have to have illusions. And our illusions are not right. We become self-deceived. And so we become disillusioned because we finally realize the, uh, the truth. I can't, I can't change this in my life. And that person over there, they can't change this in my life. They can't even change that in their life. And we become disappointed and disillusioned. We had such hopes, right? Such hopes. And those are the hopes that destroy us. 
Peter's talking about a living hope that is productive because it's based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's why our hope can be a living hope because it will bring about an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for those who are being guarded through faith for salvation. We are desperate and full of fear. And the thing about it is that fear also is a living thing. It feeds on itself and it creates the very things it's afraid of. Job, in his suffering and, and agony, cries out, The thing that I fear comes upon me. What I dread befalls me. And that oftentimes is true within us as well. We become slaves to our own fears. Hampered, hindered. Why don't you reach out in faith? I'm afraid. Uh, you're in the boat and there's a big storm and the breakers are breaking over the bow of the boat and these are men who make their living on the sea and the, and the boat's filling up with water and Jesus is sitting right there. And I'm scared, I'm going to die. There he, I don't need to get up and do something. So they go over and they shake him and wake him up. Don't you care that we're dying here? And Jesus said, oh, you of little faith, what happened to your shield? Guarded by faith. That's what it's for. It's for the times of crisis. You know, um, we understand about fear and how it's a living thing. We call it panic. And there are a lot of people today who suffer from panic attacks. Um, the way it works is you're suddenly afraid and you don't even know why or what of. You're just afraid. <laughs> and it's a debilitating thing, devastating thing. You can't do anything. You can't go anywhere. You don't want to be around anybody because you're just afraid. And, it keeps, uh, and if it keeps on going, then you end up in an institution curled up in a fetal position and that's where you stay. I've seen it. Fear. That's what happened in this country during the Great Depression. Panic created that depression. It did. We understand that. Um, a couple weeks ago, I don't know if you heard about it, they had some kind of glitch in their early warning system and they told the people in Hawaii that there were active nuclear weapons headed toward them at that time. They had a few minutes. Now that, it was supposed to be a drill, but somebody forgot the drill part and they published, they proclaimed this over the news in Hawaii. And so all of a sudden they're sitting there right now, these nuclear weapons are at us and they're on the way and people panicked. Uh, they're trying to dig holes in the ground. They're trying to get under stuff. They're calling their relatives in the States. I'm going to die. Good to know y'all. Yeah, yeah, they were doing this thing. This is just a couple weeks ago. And finally, they got the, the message out. Um, it's a drill. It's, this is not really happening. But there was a panic. We know that that's what happens when big storms, hurricanes are coming. 
and the roads are, are flooded with people who are trying to evacuate and they go in, and you can't find anything in the store because everything's been bought up. People are panicking and they're out there nailing stuff on the walls to, to keep the glass from breaking and you're driving down the road and people just go nuts, you know. They don't, they're afraid that the storm's going to hit here so they start weaving in and out and going across stuff and then people get road rage and people die from panic. And then... If you've ever seen this, it's, it's a, you're out there boarding up the walls and all this, and then the news comes across, well, the storm took an unexpected turn. And you went out and bought all this stuff, boarded up all your windows, you know, then you get mad and throw the hammer at the radio. <laughs> I've seen that too. Panic. It's what people do. So Winston Churchill, you remember, he understood that. And at that particular time, England was standing all alone before the U.S. got involved. And they were fighting the Battle of Britain with air raids every day, every day, every day, every night. The bombings and the strafings and the, all the other stuff. They had a, a submarine net around England. And all the people that were trying to get in to give aid, food, things like that, uh, most of, a good bit of them were being sunk at that time. And England was standing alone and they expected any day Hitler was massing his stuff on the northern coast of France to, for the invasion. And they were expecting it any time, any day. They were trying to get ready for it. And Churchill comes over the radio because they didn't have TVs and all that stuff too much back then. So he comes over the radio and in the calmness and in the strength, he says, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Huh. Put aside the fear. We all have it. Put it aside and get up and do something. That's what the hope is, a living hope. Getting up and doing something in spite of the fear. So it's only by facing the fact of our fear and failure that we can take hold of the hope that's offered to us. In facing the truth about ourselves, we're thrown onto Jesus as the one source of strength and life. This is why our hope is a real hope, why it's an alive hope, because it springs direct from the living God through whom the hope of harvest is there, and the harvest of hope is fulfilled. Paul told the Corinthians, you got three things that last forever. You know, the gifts of the Spirit, they're going to stop when you stand in the presence of the Lord. The fruit of the Spirit will be there full grown with everybody when we stand in the presence of the Lord. And he says three things are going to last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And so he's saying we have a living hope and it begins now. And so he talks about this and he gives this to us. He challenges us as Christians. Um, to take this living hope and live it out. David in the Psalms says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Lamentations, we read it with the worship team this morning. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. 
Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful to you for your grace and mercy that reaches down to us. And we thank you for the sprinkled blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And that through that blood, we have forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. We pray, Father, that that eternal life, that hope, would be a living one that's effective and powerful in our life today because the one who promised is faithful. And so, Lord, we look to you with anticipation and confidence, knowing that what you've promised you will fulfill, even today. In Jesus' name, amen. Toward the end of that first chapter, Peter reminds the church so that your faith and your hope are in God. So it's the sprinkled blood by which we have access to the throne of God's mercy and grace. And so we look to Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 19. And this is what he says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Okay, so that's us and God. Now what about us with each other? He continues, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so he invites us to enter in through the curtain that separates um, the holy place from the holy of holies where God is. And he says, we have access to the very presence of God himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so that's the hope, the hope that he has placed within us the, the confession of our hope. And he says, it's based on what Christ has done for us. Because on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body. It's broken for you. And the way of access is through Jesus Christ. He told us, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to know God, you have to go through Jesus Christ. Then after supper, he took the cup. And after he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, Take, drink. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's shed for you and for many. It's for the forgiveness of sins. It's the offer of new life. It's the living hope that we have because of the living presence of Christ in our hearts. And he invites us to come. 
So will those who are serving communion please come forward. Just a reminder, there'll be someone over here to pray if you want someone to pray for you or with you.